Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, joined today by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? Um, You know, dealing with pandemic whiplash. Woo! Uh, happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, consolidation. As Spider-Man No Way Home racks up box office dollars, its $260 million is uh, roughly 12 times what the rest of the top 10 grossed combined. Disney has come under some scrutiny for the manner in which it has released its pickups from 20th Century Fox uh, in a 10-day stretch surrounding No Way Home, which is partly funded by Disney and is being released by Sony. Disney either released or is releasing West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, and The King's man, putting them in competition not only with each other, but also with what was pretty clearly going to be the biggest movie of the year. Now, one could make the case for any of these movies being released during this time, I suppose, though putting The King's Man up against Spider-Man feels like a mistake. But West Side Story could have been the next greatest showman, right? A movie that opens slowly and builds an audience as families lacking options at the multiplex start flocking to it on strong word of mouth. Uh, and Nightmare Alley is an Oscar-friendly follow-up to Guillermo del Toro's best picture winning The Shape of Water. So it makes sense to maybe give that an award season release date. But releasing all three at the same time, in an environment where theater owners are canceling showings left and right in order to give No Way Home as many screens as possible, uh, and at a time when older audiences and, and female audiences are nervous about going to the movies as it is due to COVID, and with news swirling about, about Omicron-related surges, was this a good idea? I don't know. I don't know. Again, there's, a, there's an argument to be made here that the release dates wouldn't really matter that much for precisely those reasons. These are movies for adults, and adults are, by and large, avoiding the multiplex. But there's also an argument to be made that this is the inevitable result of consolidation at the studio level. Look, when Disney bought 20th Century Fox, they bought a slate of movies that had already been made or were in the process of being made and needed distribution. And those movies, not only these, but also Ridley Scott's The Last Duel and Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, have almost undeniably gotten short shrift. Then again, Free Guy, another 20th century pickup, popped with audiences. Alyssa, what do you think is to blame for the box office woes of these pictures? Uh, is it audiences uh, or the studio that is distributing them? It's really hard for me to think of this as like a grand conspiracy, right? I mean, if you want to be in the Steven Spielberg business, why intentionally mess with his movie? I, I don't think that there is necessarily a lot of overlap in the audiences for No Way Home and West Side Story in particular. They just seem like very, very different projects. They seem complementary, not like substitutions. And if you thought that West Side Story was going to play like Greatest Showman and have a really long tail, then to a certain extent, it wouldn't really matter, right? You know, if you're like, you want to get it out there so people know that it's an option and something that they want to see, but you wouldn't it's just really hard for me to detect the reasoning behind the conspiracy here. Well, I I, I want to clarify. I don't I don't yeah. think it's a conspiracy exactly. It's not like I think uh, you know Disney wanted these movies to fail. Yeah. But I do think there's a lack of care. I mean, I like set aside you know oh well, you know we have an executive who doesn't you know who didn't approve of these projects in the first place and sure. you know what. But like I I mean I just think that this is a real problem for the industry writ large when you have one company in charge of so many different releases that it's it's going to be a real problem. Well, and it's, it's going to be a problem. But also, I don't envy any studio executive who's trying to make programming and release schedule decisions right now. I mean, I think 
all of us were feeling pretty good about a month ago before Omicron, you know, exploded and became the obvious nightmare that we're dealing with now. And, you know, it's really hard for folks to make these decisions and to make, you know, $100 million, $200 million decisions on a month's notice. It's just basically impossible. Um especially because the situation seems to have changed so dramatically. I mean, I saw West Side Story at my neighborhood theater, which requires you to show proof of vaccination and it requires you to keep your mask on the entire time. Like you don't have the option to eat or drink. And my neighborhood theater has a lot. I mean, I go to movies during the day where the main audience is retirees or near retirees who have some flexibility in their work schedules. Um, so I generally am the youngest person in my theater by 30 or 40 years. And West Side Story was as full as I have seen it. So, you know, clearly there are— Can I ask how full that that is? I'm sorry to interrupt. I, it's a huge theater. It's like a couple hundred seats, and it was maybe half full um, mm. on, you know, a Friday noon screening <laughs> um, in, you know, a not particularly dense part of D.C. So I think that's not bad. Um, and clearly, you know, that demographic is comfortable coming out under certain circumstances. But, you know, this neighborhood theater is also a nonprofit, a real community institution. People, I think, trust both the, sort of the staff and each other. And increasingly, as we know, movie theaters in America aren't like that. You know, they're not most of them are not requiring vaccination. Most of them are not requiring masking unless, you know, a local ordinance requires that they do so necessarily. And, you know, a lot of theaters in the U.S. are not in great shape anymore. They're not, you know, particularly well maintained. You know, they're not even necessarily routinely cleaned in between showings. Um, a lot of places are sort of falling apart. And, you know, I can understand going to a theater in a high-trust situation if you're in a more vulnerable demographic. But if you don't have a strong relationship with your local movie theater, which you probably don't if you're an average American, I can see deciding to stay home if you are, you know, the sort of the, the kind of person who's going to go see the new West Side Story for nostalgia reasons primarily. And I sort of understand why that audience wouldn't show up. I understand the calculation. I'm, you know, it's not just the risk levels for people. It's, you know, the risk of having the holidays blown up. And as someone who, you know, missed Christmas last year because of a positive mild case in my family, I really understand not wanting to lose that second holiday. So, you know, the combination of Oscar season and the holiday season sort of running into each other in a way that functions exactly the opposite of the way it's been supposed to function in the past, i.e. people have some more time off, therefore they want to and can go see some more movies. You know, it's completely different this year, right? I mean, now all of a sudden, like, that free time and the chance to see family versus going to the movies are things that potentially have to be weighed against each other. And so I I don't envy anybody having to make any decisions on any level in this situation, including me, because they're really hard. We're all operating with imperfect information. Um, I barely want to make decisions myself. I don't envy any studio executives. I just think it's really hard. Yeah. Peter, what do you make of this pileup and and what the release strategy looks like here in, in the age of not only Omicron, but also uh, No Way Home. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different factors here. One is that these release decisions were made, you know, well before Thanksgiving, um, in many cases, uh, much earlier in the year. 
long before anybody had a sense that there would be these this sort of perpetual um, run of variants that might sort of mess things up every few months. All right. People were thinking in, in the middle of the summer that this was basically over and maybe there would be some sort of minor weather related, you know, seasonal seasonal related um, winter surge. But people weren't thinking about even Delta at that point in, you know, in, in June or whatever, when some of these decisions were made. Um, another thing that's happening here is that Spider-Man is actually overperforming. Yes, it's dominating, but it's dominating much more than people expected it to even just a week ago where Spider-Man was tracking in the 160s rather than in the 200s, you know, well into the 200s. Yeah. Um, and so Spider-Man has just done much, much better than anybody else thought and that has left less room for other films. Some of this is just predictable failures. So um, West Side Story underperformed for sure, but so did In the Heights over the summer back when there was no serious you know, I mean, I, I think maybe we might have just been into the, the Delta zone, but like not seriously into it, um, if I recall correctly. Uh, right. And so musicals yeah. are underperforming uh, right now. Um, films targeted more at adults and, and women are, are underperforming right now. Uh, also, you look at Nightmare Alley and Shape of Water, their box office, basically the same opening weekend. They both made about three million dollars. Now, Nightmare Alley cost a lot more to make. So it's a bigger problem for Nightmare Alley. But these numbers are not that surprising for a Guillermo del Toro weirdo film coming out in, around Christmas. Uh, but I think the biggest factor in the end here just has to be uh, age and demographics. And, and you know, this is uh, something that you have talked about elsewhere, Sonny, um, something that industry data is now really quite clear on. The people who are most comfortable coming back to movies are young men. We talk about four quadrants. That's men over 25, men under 25, women over 25, women under 25. The men under 25 quadrant is by far the most comfortable coming back to movies, followed by men over 25, followed by women under 25, followed by women over 25. And yes, any one of these films that we're talking about might theoretically appeal to an individual in any of those four quadrants, but it's pretty clear which quadrant is driving a movie like Spider-Man, which quadrant is is driving a pretty good box office numbers for something like Dune or Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, right? The, the films that are doing well are franchise or genre films that target men under 25. And the films that are doing badly uh, lean much more heavily on the female and older demographics. Um, and yeah. so that is that seems to me like the, the main part of the story here. And you know what, when you were talking about this, you brought this up at the beginning, Sonny, um, it actually made me think back to a couple of months ago when Paramount, I believe it is, bumped a couple of forthcoming Tom Cruise films, including Top Gun 2, which was supposed to come out at the end of this year, uh, and Mission Impossible. Both of those have been pushed back. And Sonny, you made the point, I believe it was on Twitter, that you said, you know, if studios want people to come back to the movies, they have to actually release their products. And Top Gun 2 is going to end up being delayed by almost two years because of this. Um, yep. And the studios are releasing their product here. They are trying to put stuff into theaters that will draw people in. I mean, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story is about as classic an adult, you know, winter season, big budget movie experience as you can imagine. And it's just not working because certain parts of the movie going audience are not ready to come back. It's not clear that they're ever going to come back. And relatedly, you know, like for young men, even who are somewhat interested in movies that are not superhero franchise films, the films that aren't Spider-Man, that aren't Marvel, that aren't Venom, you know, Dune, whatever, are always going to be marginal experiences. 
at, at the theater, right? They're always going to be like the thing that they could skip. And now almost anything that could be skipped is getting skipped by almost everyone because almost everyone who isn't one of the three of us has reduced their theatrical movie going somewhat. And so all of the films that w are sort of going to be second, third, fourth place films are just going to do less well while the the big players are going to do better. This is going to end up being a winner take all market. And the winner is that takes all is going to be Spider-Man, the Avengers uh, and the rest of the, you know, the big superhero franchise films. Yeah, it's a it's not. I mean, I, I, I spent the weekend, you know, kind of jokingly saying movies are back uh, with this two hundred sixty million dollar opening movie um, is back. No. The movie, the movie is back. I mean, this is it, it's a real problem. As you said, I mean, look, I've been banging this drum on all my podcast, but the the older audience is gone. And I don't know that they're coming back. Certainly anytime soon. They're too freaked out. And women are similarly, you know, less risk averse. I, I joked about the, you know, the male death drive kind of kind of being the uh, yeah. defining factor of this of the movie going audience right now. But it's true. I mean, if you if you look at if you look at the movies that have done well, the top five movies of this year will likely end it if if Eternals can make another 10 million domestically the top five movies will all be Marvel branded you know free guy was a was a relatively surprising hit that is a male-driven movie that is a young male-driven movie that ended with like a, a a Marvel crossover event basically yeah yeah so I mean I, I I'm worried about smaller movies and more artistically minded movies perhaps uh in this in the sense that I like a movie like Nightmare Alley was always going to be kind of a tough sell because it's a it's a bit of a downer it's it's a pretty intense uh, movie i don't know if you guys have seen it Not but yet. it's it's a dark noirish type movie um you know uh west side story you could make an argument about you know musicals being dead i don't know i'm curious to see how the king's man does because it's the movie that is most clearly in competition with spider-man no way home but it is also the movie that is most designed to appeal to the male under 25 segment of all these films so maybe it'll do okay i don't know but i, I again i i just my my main issue is releasing all three of them at the same time in an in an environment where the audience for these adult minded movies is still very limited. I think it's a really interesting question. Is it a worse decision to have done it this way than, for example, to do Warner's sort of dual release strategy, right? It's like, if you look at them as kind of separate experiments, like which one ends up looking worse, which one ends up looking better? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, of, of that, you know, uh, relatedly, I think the, um, just the whole existence of streaming video on demand and the release strategies that we've seen over the last year and a half, plus the existence of pretty good home theater systems in many people's yeah. homes. A lot of people, right? Not everybody has, you know, a, a gigantic dedicated theater room, but people have very large televisions. Even, you know, uh, mediocre sound bars actually can sound pretty great, certainly much better than what most people had in their homes 20 years ago. And it's, it's not competitive with a theater like with an IMAX to see Spider-Man. But, you know, is it competitive for like a, a little domestic drama? In many ways, I think it is. And those formats, those format changes have trained people to see adult domestic dramas at home and to think, well, this isn't worth going to the theater for, uh, especially when you can get many of them um, within, a, you know, either day and date or within a couple of weeks of them showing up in theaters. I'm going to be really curious to see how The Matrix Resurrections does. Yeah. Because um, I think that is, it's skewed younger and male, but it's also the people who have the strongest connection to that franchise are like 
the three of us sitting in this room, right? Yeah, people, yeah. Those of us who were like teenagers in 1999 and like had our minds yeah. blown. It's a zenial masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, but it's also and but again, it's it's also going to be on HBO Max yep, at the yep. same time. And it's not going to have a lot of the premium large format screens, which are still dedicated to Spider-Man. I mean, I, I think the the ceiling on Resurrections is is pretty low. I would say like 60 or 70 million. Uh, it's also just a strange film that is. Well, yeah, this something sec- we're going to talk about. Get- that, that, Bap, bap, bap. And, all right. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what do we think? Uh, is it a controversy or a non-controversy that Disney dumped three pickups against not only each other but also the biggest movie of the year? Uh, Peter, it's not a controversy that Disney did it. I think it is a controversy that people aren't coming out to see these films. Alyssa, uh, the entire world is a con- like a disastrous controversy, <laughs> but this decision is a relative controversy. I think it's a controversy. I I will I demand Disney do a better job. The, the I, well, I guess they don't really have anything left. They've they've thoroughly uh, dismantled what was left of 20th Century Fox. So I'm still bummed that when I go to a movie theater and uh, the, the 20th Century Fox logo plays, it's just the 20th Century Company now. I I, I miss that Fox. Uh, portion from it. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and who doesn't, it's great. Please head over to atma.thebulwark.com uh, where we'll have a special bonus episode. We're going to draft Spider-Man movies. Let you decide uh, which of us has the best lineup of flicks. I'm very excited for this experiment. It can't possibly go wrong in any way. Speaking of Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, as we have mentioned, it is an enormous hit. It grossed more in its first three days than any other movie released this year has grossed in its entire domestic run. It grossed nearly $600 million worldwide uh, without even opening in China, which is currently the world's biggest movie market, um, making it the it's the third highest grossing Hollywood movie of the year behind F9 and No Time to Die and the I think the either fifth or sixth highest grossing overall. There's a couple of Chinese movies in there. After next weekend, it'll likely be the highest grossing Hollywood movie of the year uh, and will pretty easily cross $1 billion, again, without the aid of Chinese box office. That's a big, I'm frankly kind of shocked. Uh, a few more data points for you. No Way Home got an A-plus from CinemaScore audiences, which is just the fourth live-action comic book movie to do so, uh, the others being Avengers, Black Panther, and Avengers Endgame. It is currently at 94% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with critics and 99% fresh with verified audiences. Uh, I did not officially review Spider-Man No Way Home. I didn't contribute to those numbers. I have a a conflict. I'm friendly with somebody involved in the production of the movie. Um, So, you know, grain of salt on everything I'm, uh, I'm about to say. But I saw it with a sold-out paying audience on Thursday. Uh, The Thursday it was released, the first showing, 3 p.m. at my local draft house. And I realized pretty much instantly that this was going to be a massive, massive hit. The audience was super into it, cheering at multiple points. Uh, The movie itself is funny, exciting. It's surprisingly poignant. Uh, It is just very good. And here is where I want to officially and strenuously warn anyone who is listening and has not yet seen the movie and is worried about spoilers. Spoilers are to follow. There's going to be spoilers after this. So, you know, uh, look out, folks. Again, if you're going to watch Spider-Man No Way Home, you're worried about spoilers, stop listening now. Turn off the podcast. I've already got your download. I don't care if you listen to the rest of it. I just don't want to get any emails from anyone, okay? All right. If you're still listening... I don't want to hear any complaints about spoilers, uh, nor do I want to hear any complaints about the fact that we're talking about the biggest movie of the last 24 months. Some of you comic book movie scolds can find something else to listen to instead of yelling at me about that either. All right, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, It has to walk a very tricky tightrope, balancing the demands of fan service with the need to make a compelling movie. And the fan service comes naturally from the plot. Spider-Man 
having been revealed to be Peter Parker in the previous film, Far From Home, uh, finds that neither he nor his friends can get into college. As such, he asks Doctor Strange to tamper with the fabric of reality and make everything everyone forget that they uh, they know he's Spider-Man. Doctor Strange does this, but Peter messes with the spell and something goes wrong and all of a sudden villains from previous Spider-Man movies start showing up. Doc Ock, Green Goblin, Sandman, uh, the Lizard, Electro, they're all here. They're trying to kill Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Doctor Strange wants to send them back to their timeline, but Spider-Man is hesitant to do so after learning that they will die as a result. After a tragic battle with the Green Goblin, Spidey decides to go off and hide, which brings the previous Spider-Men into the picture, the Peters Parker, played by Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Uh, all three Spider-Men join forces and fight against the bad guys until the Tom Holland Spidey uh, is forced to make a radical decision that will forever change his life. I have some quibbles with this movie. Uh, it's got one too many epilogues, which, you know, kind of gets to the point that it's it's a little it's a little bloated at, you know, two and a half hours. And the effort uh, to give the Tom Holland Spidey a great power and great responsibility speech, the message gets a little bit inverted uh, since he and his loved ones are punished because he did the right thing, because he tried to take responsibility. But on the whole, I, I got to be honest, I love this. I love No Way Home in a way that I have not really loved an MCU movie since probably Spider-Man Homecoming. But then, as I mentioned, I am biased. Uh, Alyssa, I know I went to you first on the last segment, but I'm going to come back to you first again. Uh, with all of that said, all of the grains of salt of my, you know, biases and whatnot, you had a rare new mom again, night out, date night, to go see the new Spider-Man. Was it worth it? Was um, it worth your time? Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Uh, my husband and I went to see the movie during the day uh, while we had childcare. And like you, we saw it with an incredibly enthusiastic, totally packed, paying audience. And I think I enjoyed sort of being with that audience almost as much as I enjoyed the movie itself. I will say, um, just as a quick caveat, that the movie made me feel really old. It just first in the sense that mostly in the mechanics around Peter's wish, like the idea that Doctor Strange, like an adult with a higher education and a bunch of, you know, enlightenment style experiences decides to mess with the fabric of the universe because an 18 year old and his friends are feeling agita about college is there's just, this is a franchise about how Peter Parker has unbelievably terrible father figures just all around, right? Like no one is looking out for this kid in an appropriate way at all. Um, second, the obvious thing is not to wish that everyone would forget that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, but to wish that like Quentin Beck's broadcasts and J. Jonah Jameson's like Daily Bugle episodes had never happened and, you know, focused on those discrete events. And then everything would have been fine. So this kid is dumb and is not getting good mentoring. And someone just needs to swoop in and provide him with like some actual positive, sensible male influences in his life because this is all just a hot mess. The other thing that made me feel kind of old was the fact that I've been watching these movies for almost 20 years. <laughs> and so seeing the other Spideys show up and in particular seeing Tobey Maguire's Spidey show up and be like, be like sort of middle-aged with back problems um, just made me feel completely ancient. Um, I think this is pretty good, but it's pretty good in a way that ends up reminding viewers of one of the most significant flaws of the other Marvel movies, which is that their villains are kind of terrible, right? I mean, when you see Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina show up in these old roles and be just tremendous in different ways, you know, to give like really big, fun acting performances um, that draw out different aspects of the Spider-Man characters, it just, you see the lacuna 
at the heart of the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, in a way that's kind of a bummer. And the fight scenes are not great. The third act, Michigas, the Statue of Liberty, looks basically like garbage and wastes the opportunity that, you know, the movie set up to really have sort of three Spideys work together to play with them, fighting in different ways. It just looks, I mean, it looks kind of like the CGI garbage that was sort of the best you could do in the early aughts when Sam Raimi was making his, you know, overall very good initial Spider-Man trilogy. Um, It doesn't look any better, but it's also not nearly as clever as anything that Raimi did with much less advanced technology. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's just that aspect of it is kind of a bummer. Um, You know, I think Holland is good. I think all the performance, the central performances are fairly strong as usual. You know, Tom Holland is gradually becoming less plausible as a 17 or 18 year old. But he and Zendaya have some nice chemistry. Like, you know, the most fun action-y sequence is probably the initial one in which he and MJ are trying to get away from the crowd and she is just completely freaked out and irritated about being swung and slung around in Spider-Man fashion. And so you get to sort of see that as it not a fight scene necessarily, but as, you know, this is what this kind of kinetic motion feels like and these are the ways in which it might or might not be fun. Um, so it's fine. I think it's good. I like getting out of the house. It's, you know, it's it's a good thing to do, especially when you have a, a new baby. Um, was it, you know, as transcendent as like going to see a West Side Story by myself in an afternoon theater? No, it wasn't. But then I'm sort of a Marvel Cinematic Universe grouch at this point. And so I think that is my particular grain of salt that it takes one of these movies to be sort of better than average, which I think Spider-Man Homecoming absolutely was in part because it had probably the best villain performance in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, at least in quite some time. So it was fine. Peter, uh, what, did, what did you make? You saw this at your new local draft house, did you not? You went Brand to the- Brand new Alamo mm. draft house in Washington, D.C. And I'll so just say that the, the the theatrical experience part of it was really remarkable and made me kind of upset, Sonny, that you have been hiding this been cinema this. technology yeah. from uh, those of us in Washington, D.C. for so long. Uh, uh, no, this is the most fan service movie to ever fan service. It is just pure, unapologetic audience pandering, um, even more than something like, I think, Avengers Endgame, uh, but also in much the same way that End- that Avengers Endgame was a kind of a recap of the Marvel Universe so far, right? It was a highlight reel of memorable moments from previous films. The, the characters literally just sort of went back and re-experienced a whole bunch of the movies, like, so that you could, you could like, go along with them and be like, oh yeah, I remember that movie, that was great, man. Well, that it's- one actually wasn't good, but now they've made it good, maybe me fondly remember it, right? It's the world's most expensive wiki. Yeah, right? And and it's also a kind of a reset, much like Endgame, right? Because it lets uh, it lets the, the filmmakers start over in a way. The end of this movie is effectively a continuity wipe after, you know, recapping all that they've been through, in, even, you know, outside of this particular continuity. They're saying, well, that was fun, but goodbye to all that. And, you know, it, it's pretty good, I think, for what it is. Um, the villains are all, you know, kind of delightful, uh, despite the fact that they don't really have very much to do. I mean, none of them get like a, a real signature scene with the maybe exception of Willem Dafoe, uh, who only gets a signature scene by virtue of being Willem Dafoe and taking mediocre material and making it 
kind of growly and and weird and great. Um, he also just has a great face in terms yeah. of his ability to switch from seeming like a relatively normal, if, if intense person, to completely insane, and then back in a way that leaves you very unsettled about where the line is. Like, I mean, the things that he does with his jaw and his eyebrows in this role are just great examples of the way you can use your face as an actor, which is not something yeah. that... His, his ability to, to basically play two different characters inside the same character and make them seamless despite the fact that they are somewhat weird, underwritten comic book villain characters yep. in a movie that is overstuffed with comic book villains and never quite yep. finds a central baddie. Like, the fact that he is able to do all of that work with the relatively limited script means that he is given here is is really impressive. Well, the, well, the, the other... I mean, the other... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the same thing with Molina in the scene yeah. where he gets the new chip, where Dr. Octopus gets a new chip and like has a sense of relief that his head is no longer crowded anymore is also, again, really lovely, better than the actual just quality of the words on the page, um, entirely about the actor, not anything else. So it's got all these great villains and villain actors in the movie. I wouldn't quite say that it wastes them, but I would say that it underuses them. But I think the thing that bugs me the most about this movie, the, the more I think about it, it's been a few days now, is that it's a movie that is about nothing but itself. And it's really kind of empty. It feels like a hall of mirrors, right? I've joked that it's, you know, it's sort of the two Spider-Man meme, but like in $200 million movie film form and with three Spider-Men, I guess, right? But this is literally a Spider-Man movie about how much you liked all the other Spider-Man movies. Like, that's it. That's the main idea of this film. And it's true. I, I am a person who likes Spider-Man. I had mail-in subscriptions when I was nine years old to Amazing and Web Of. Like, Spider-Man has been a big part of my life. And absolutely, I do have, like, weirdly strong personal feelings about Spider-Man and all of the films. I've watched them all many, many, many times. I mean, even uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, I've seen probably a half dozen times. Um, and yet, this seems like a real limitation uh, the, of the, the big franchise format, you know, where like a, a big franchise filmmaking right now, which is that these films are empty and insular and they they can't really speak to anything outside of of themselves and 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 anything in it's not just anything in the real world, but any new ideas at this point. This is a movie that is entirely about recycling and repurposing old ideas. I think it does it takes that limited job and and does it in a way that is pretty pleasing and and pretty effective. Um, I'm, the, but the more I think about it, the more I think it's sort of not great. The more I think it's sort of like there's there's not enough movie there, especially for the for the long run time. Peter, you're forgetting that it's a movie about how hard it is for kids these days to get into college. I mean, come on. No, and in fact, look, the first 25 minutes of this movie that are mostly focused on Peter Parker's like personal and domestic strife and the fact that it's hard to be a kid are in, are I think in some ways the best part of this movie. And it just kind of leaves that stuff behind. Yes, yeah. there's some, there's a there's a bunch of it like, that comes up again in the coda, right? In the in the final fifteen minutes, they like say they basically sort of say, "Oh, remember how the beginning of this movie was about how he wants to go to college? Well, now we're going to come back to that." But the rest of the movie isn't really about that. The rest of the the movie is all about doing the villain tour thing, right? Where we just yeah. sort of give each one of them uh, a little scene. It's episodic. I mean, it's the same thing we've seen, in, you know, in comic books for forever now. This was the 
uh, the structure of the Dark Knight Returns back in the mid-1980s, the Long Halloween, all of these Batman comics, where it's basically set up so that each issue brings you to a new villain who then leads you to the next issue and the next villain. Um, and okay, I get that people like this because it sort of feels, it feels like you're making the universe richer and deeper. At the same time, when you're doing that, when you're 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 leaving the rest of the world entirely behind. And I just don't know what these Spider-Man films are, are trying to say or trying to be about at all, except, man, we sure do like Spider-Man. And okay, I like Spider-Man. What, what would you say the Raimi Spider-Man movies are about, Peter? I would say they're actual attempts to uh, reckon with the uh, Spider-Man uh, mantra of with great power comes great responsibility. And they're about how... Um, having great power can make you feel awkward and strange, right? They're they are small, strange personal films about being a nerd, right? And about being a dork and being an outsider. They're Spider-Man movies about Spider-Man. Yeah, they are. I mean, yes, that's what you are, just said. They're about the character, I, not about... Yeah. They're about the character and about the person, not about previous films or the films that they're trying to set up, right? Mm -hmm. They're about a specific individual character who, yes, did exist on the comic book page, but they weren't super referential in that sense. In fact, they were criticized for departing in some ways, most notably the, uh, the organic web shooters, right? Which were there because Sam Raimi wanted Spider-Man to, to be an outcast and a weirdo, to feel physically set apart from other humans because this was a movie about being an awkward, nerdy dork, you know, in the and a, like and an 80s, adolescent. 90s Raimi sense, right? Back when we thought of of nerds as like weirdos who were uh, who were outcasts rather than nerds as, uh, you know, the uh, rulers of our pop culture universe. I mean, I just I, I just want to circle back to one one th one more thing, uh, Alyssa, before we sorry. come back to you. You said you've seen Amazing Spider-Man number two six times. Not in the you've theater, but yeah. a dozen times. I put it on. How how have you? I find that shocking, frankly. I find that's the most shocking thing out of all. So of this. a thing about me is that I watch superhero entertainment when I'm not feeling super well and need something that to be on, but not concentrate on it. Uh, the Batman the Animated Series, the Superman Animated Series, the Justice League shows, um, uh, and the Marvel Universe. I will just put them on and. So when I say I've seen it a half dozen times, I don't mean that I've sat there and taken notes a half dozen times, but I've definitely seen most of it about that number of times. Not that doesn't necessarily okay. even mean that I can remember all the scenes. It just it does mean that it's like sort of there right. osmotically a, in my subconscious. Little, 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 okay, I, again, I, I think that's the most striking thing from that. Uh, Hulk, <laughs> uh, Alyssa, in terms of what you mentioned, you mentioned the great performances. Uh, in this, and one thing that really kind of jumps out at me is the decision early on to take Willem Dafoe out of the terrible Green Goblin mask, yep. the like hard mask from the Raimi movie, and just have it be Willem Dafoe's face, yep. which is uh, I, strikes me as a much better decision. Frankly, yep. no, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, and this is actually a movie that's full of folks with sort of good plastic faces, right? And when I say that, I mean just like that they're. Moldable. I mean, Alfred Molina has a very expressive face. Andrew Garfield has a very expressive face. You know, Tobey Maguire has those big eyes and that sort of sly, shy smile. Um, and it's just, it's a movie where, you know, it's just fun to watch these people be on screen and talk to each other. But look, the biggest problem for this movie, not necessarily about this movie, but for this movie, is that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse exists, yeah. right? Which is just, you know... 
yes, it's not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It would have been difficult to integrate that with this, although I understand why people sort of wish that Miles Morales had showed up. But it is a much better uh, movie and better than, I think, the Loki TV show about sort of looking at facets of your own identity or looking at ways where the most important thing that happened to you could have played out differently if it happened to somebody else. I mean, it's just a much more sort of thoughtful, creative, and ultimately playful meditation on that idea. And when you've got it sort of lingering in the background, it's it's hard not to think of that every time, you know, you break for air while watching No Way Home. I mean, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was also a movie about Spider-Man as a sort of identitarian model, right? And and the way that, like, Spider-Man was initially built, you know, in the 60s uh, you know, by his creators as like, oh, here is, he, he, he is somebody who you can relate to if you are also a nerd who reads comic books. And then they're, like, the argument inherent to to Spider-Verse was that actually Spider-Man, it's not just for like nerdy white dudes who kind of feel awkward because they look, you know, look like Peter Parker. It's that Spider-Man is for everyone, right? And so all we can all relate to this in our own different way because Spider-Man is not is not just one character named Peter Parker who has a very specific origin story. Spider-Man is a sort of a, array of different but yet very specific and unique individual characters, just like all of us. And so it was this movie that sort of celebrated like a, a kind of identitarian diversity, but also did so by giving us like a, a vast array of really specific niche individuals and not sort of saying, well, we're just going to reduce everybody to demographic groups. It's just this it's a really wonderful film about like how basically like, about how like diversity stuff is like all of your diversity concerns are, are, are like are valid and great. And we're going to make a movie that actually reflects that um, in a way that's smart rather than one that's just sort of rote and box checking and pro forma, like, you know, Eternals and a, a couple of the other things that we've seen. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Spider-Man No Way Home? Peter? I give it a thumbs up, but somewhat qualified. Alyssa? Ditto. Thumbs up for me, too. Uh, I again I enjoyed it uh, alright uh, that is it for this week's show if you loved it make sure to check out our members only bonus episode where we're going to be doing a Spider-Man movie draft it's going to go really well I promise you uh, and make sure uh, to tell your friends strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if you don't grow we will die if you did not love today's episode please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch I'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week <laughs> <laughs>